Welcome to the Spiked Podcast. I'm Ella Whelan, Assistant Editor at Spiked, and on this week's podcast, I talk to Brendan O'Neill about the ongoing Harvey Weinstein scandal, Luke Gittos about the death of Isis's white widow, and Kerry Dingle about a new film to celebrate the Russian Revolution. It's been over two weeks since the New York Times published its expose on former Hollywood mogul Harvey Weinstein. The piece revealed sexual harassment allegations dating back to the 90s, including eight financial settlements between different women and Weinstein. Since then, it's best to describe what's happened as a frenzy. Following an initial silence among movie stars, actress after actress has come out and stated that she was in some way harassed by Weinstein. Following that, a social media campaign sharing the hashtag MeToo called on women all over the world to raise awareness of how common sexual harassment supposedly is by sharing this hashtag. Now, no doubt Harvey Weinstein was a creep, and according to recent allegations, he quite possibly is a criminal. But what should we make of the hysteria surrounding him? Because it has become bigger than Weinstein. And is it possible that this is yet another moral panic masquerading as a feminist campaign? To discuss this, I spoke to Spiked editor Brendan O'Neill in New York. So Brendan, both you and I have written about the Weinstein scandal. It happened and it came out about two weeks ago. Uh, And since then, it has just been spiralling and spiralling out of control. It seems like every day, another person comes out and says that they were either ashamed of Weinstein or that Weinstein did something to them, whether that be standing too close to the lift, right up to very serious allegations of rape now. What is going on? I think it is definitely a form of hysteria. I'm really surprised at how quickly it has taken hold of the kind of media and collective imagination as this real symbol of evil. That's the thing that really gets me. That's the thing that really suggests to me that this has become almost like a sexual Salem, a kind of sexual harassment Salem, where we are looking for evil, looking for people who refuse to renounce the evil, attacking anyone who doesn't agree with absolutely everything we say about sexual harassment or about Harvey Weinstein. The whole culture around it has become very witch-hunty, very hysterical, and completely and utterly out of control. And there are a couple of things that really should start getting alarm bells ringing. The first is the um, conflation of different forms of behaviour. So what we're talking about with the Harvey Weinstein allegations is everything from rape, which everyone agrees is an incredibly serious crime, and if he's been accused of that, he should be taken to court and tried for it. And then it goes right through to other incidents that some actresses are talking about, where he effectively tried to get off with them, and they told him to go away. And that's an everyday form of behaviour. Men and women across the country, across the world, as we speak, are trying to get off with people who don't want to get off with them, and they're being told to go away. That's a daily occurrence. And the conflation of those two forms of activity is deeply worrying. It undermines rape, by treating it as on being on a spectrum with other forms of sexual behaviour. And it starts to treat all forms of sexual interaction and interaction between men and women as somehow problematic. And then the second thing that should get alarm bells ringing is the way in which anyone who doesn't instantly renounce Weinstein is seen as an evil person. 
Uh, this goes for Oliver Stone, Donna Karen, Lindsay Lohan, Quentin Tarantino. This is hysteria. If we cannot even withhold judgment until a trial has taken place, then this has an element of kind of Stalinist show trial, a Salem-like witch hunt, and we really need to get a control on it quickly. And of course, now following the Weinstein scandal, there's been this social media push, the Me Too hashtag, which is a way of trying to raise awareness, supposedly, of the levels of sexual harassment in society by encouraging women to share a hashtag which says Me Too. Now, there's something very uncomfortable for me about this campaign because it's not based on any fact necessarily. It's not actually looking to do any kind of substantial survey of the way that women feel about this. It feels very much like an online witch hunt, a twitch hunt. We kind of know what these are. And this has all the characteristics of being something which is, as you say, completely akin to hysteria rather than anything serious. I think it's that's another element of this rather terrifying culture that's growing up around this. I think what's actually happening is that there was an already existing moral crusade uh, in search of abuse and against abuse and to expose abuse and expose evil. That kind of moral crusade has existed for a long time and it's always looking for an outlet through which it can express itself. I think this really goes back to something like the satanic ritual abuse panic in the late 80s and early 90s, when feminists and others became convinced that men around Britain and the US were dressing in black cloaks and abusing children. I mean, they truly believed this. And they launched campaigns with titles like, I believe the children. They believed what they were being told, and it was utterly, utterly made up. Uh, And then it shifts from the satanic ritual abuse panic to a generalized panic about paedophiles, which the tabloids were in fact at the forefront of that in the 1990s. And that led to people being attacked and houses being burnt down and this conviction that there were paedophiles in every street in every Western country. And then it shifts on to the Jimmy Savile panic. And we have this whole thing of past celebrities having abused thousands and thousands of people and the government having to believe everyone and give compensation to everyone. And now it's found a new outlet, this free-floating search for evil, this conviction that evil exists everywhere, that men are terrible and women and children are victims. Now it's shifted to Harvey Weinstein. It's become this very convenient outlet for an already existing sense of panic and hysteria and atomization. And I think you're absolutely right that the, the, the Me Too hashtag really takes that onto another level. And what we have there, in essence, is more and more people wanting to be part of this crusade, wanting to be part of the hunt for evil, wanting to say, I have experienced evil too. I have seen the devil too. And that's really what we have with the Me Too thing. The conflation of different forms of behavior is really shocking. The suggestion that we must believe everyone who makes an accusation is particularly shocking. And whenever I hear people say, you must believe the accuser, you must believe the women, I think, well, you know, what about the fictional character in To Kill a Mockingbird who makes a false accusation of rape against a black person? Do we believe that person? Do we go back in time and believe all the white women who made false accusations of rape against black men in the American South because they knew that was the way you could get a black man killed? Do we believe the women 
and men, the thousands of women and men who made accusations in Soviet Russia against neighbours or former friends or academics who they didn't like because they knew that was a way of having that person crushed and potentially imprisoned. We need to be sceptical of accusations while also treating them seriously and sensitively. That's how you approach justice. If we have a situation where someone can be destroyed on the basis of accusation alone, then we no longer live in a civilised society. And I think really what is most problematic about this and what really gives me the shivers the most is I don't think people realise how damaging this is for women. So the argument that every woman at all times should feel threatened by male attention, should look upon spontaneous interactions with men uh, sceptically and treat it as something like a danger to be managed rather than a potential new relationship to be enjoyed. There's a real patronising tone to this Me Too campaign. It's very much about seeing women as damsels in distress, as wilting wallflowers, as people who can only now manage to speak out because there is a social media campaign. I mean, one wonders what these women do when something happens to them on the street, when it does happen, if it does happen. I mean, do they just melt into the ground? There's no sense of standing up for women as being strong, um, independent, powerful, bolshy, people capable of being rude back when rude behavior happens to them so what then finally do you think is so important about actually you know attempting to step back and have a look at this real moral panic deal with it sensibly and encourage people to not get caught up in this hysteria i think it's incredibly important and i think it's absolutely true that the biggest losers in this in fact are women now of course uh, there is always that possibility and, and it is happening now that men will be talked about as abusers or predators and, and not just the men who are proven to have done deeply disturbing things to women, but also we have already have this broadening out with people saying it's actually most men, this is male behaviour, this is what masculinity does. So that's already happening. So men are treated like trash as a consequence of this, there's no question of that. Uh, and that, again, has been happening for years. Um, fathers, uh, boyfriends, husbands, you know, for a long time, all these different sections of society have been talked about suspiciously and as potential abusers. But I think the bigger losers are women because, as you say, they are being told implicitly and explicitly to be wary all the time, to be scared all the time, to worry that the man who asks them on a date or who puts his arm around them when he's had a few too many is abusing them, that they cannot cope with sexual advances, that they must have an outlet where they can tell everyone that this sexual advance was really sexual harassment. And, you know, if if the second wave of feminism was was important in any way, it was important in the sense that it said women should have the right to be in the workplace and should be trusted to negotiate work life as well as men do. And women should be as sexually liberated as men are. Women should be allowed to enjoy sex and make choices and decide for themselves what they want to do and what they don't want to do. And I think this whole culture is reversing both of those gains of second wave feminism. It's saying the workplace is an incredibly dangerous place for women and we need more regulations and more controls. And it's saying that the world of sex is something that women find it very difficult to negotiate. 
well, maybe we should bring back chaperones. Maybe we need to go back to the Victorian idea that women shouldn't get drunk, that women needed to be looked after, and that women couldn't be let out because men are untrustworthy. Those are very old-fashioned ideas that feminists actually used to argue against. So I think this whole culture, which doesn't just come from the Weinstein scandal, but has a pretty long uh, history, is damaging to men, particularly damaging to women, but it's really damaging to the free, interesting, uh, life-affirming interactions between men and women on a daily basis, the vast majority of which are good and healthy. And the idea that they are all bad and wicked and suspicious is one of the most destructive ideas in our society right now. That was Brendan O'Neill on the Harvey Weinstein scandal. Now for our next topic. The White Widow, an English punk rocker turned ISIS recruiter, has been killed in a drone strike. But news of Sally Jones's death hasn't been met with quite as much celebration as you'd hope, given the fact that she has been heavily involved in ISIS's murderous plots. Some have been raising questions about the legality of such action, and others are perhaps uncomfortable with coming out in defence of drone strikes. But Spike's law editor Luke Gittos was not one of them. He wrote an article on Spike this week declaring that the White Widow deserved to die. Why does he think that? I gave Luke a call to find out. Well, first of all, Luke, can you tell us who was the White Widow? Uh, The White Widow was a woman called Sally Jones. She'd travelled to Syria to join uh, ISIS in 2013. She'd married another jihadist called uh, Junaid Hussein before she went out there. She reached public prominence because she appeared in a lot of ISIS propaganda. She became a very active recruiter for ISIS, particularly of women uh, and particularly over social media. She's recognisable from an image in which she is holding a gun up to the camera dressed in her uh, headdress, um, which was uh, put around everywhere by ISIS. It's quite a striking image. And she also had quite a quintessentially, or I suppose not really quintessentially, but very British past. She was in a punk rock band. She had a son who travelled to ISIS with her. She basically turned from being what was a, a relatively ordinary uh, British woman into an active recruiter for ISIS. Now, it was revealed last week that she had died in the hands of CIA operation. That hasn't been confirmed yet because the strike was by unmanned drone. But that is the information that we are uh, receiving, that she was killed in June of this year um, by a CIA unmanned drone operation. And so it seems that some people are not celebrating the fact that she's been taken out. Some people feel a bit dubious about it or don't, not sure how to feel about it. Can you tell us about that? Well, it's very interesting. I remember in the aftermath um, of the Bin Laden killing, um, when effectively uh, SEAL Team 6 stormed his shack in the middle of Pakistan and sort of executed him on the spot, there was quite a lot of outcry at that time that he hadn't been properly put on trial, he hadn't been arrested. It seemed that he had been sort of uh, killed in an extrajudicial way. Uh, And there was uproar that he hadn't been taken to New York and tried. And this was quite a widespread sentiment at the time. There was a lot of comment pieces that said his killing violated uh, international law 
and that the Americans were wrong to deny, especially people from New York, the chance to see him put on trial. Now, there hasn't been as much outcry this time around. I was quite struck when I was trying to find sort of negative reaction to this killing. There were one or two think pieces, and but the key person who came out and echoed the sentiment from back when Bin Laden was killed was Jeremy Corbyn. So Corbyn came out and said that this woman should have been captured uh, and tried. And I think there was a lot of moral hand-wringing at the very least. I mean, a lot of the tenor of the commentary around the killing was at least that people were uneasy about it. It was certainly discussed as a difficult moral question. This was made all the more prescient because it looks as though her 12-year-old son was with her when she was killed and has been killed in the same attack. So while it's worth pointing out that there wasn't as much outcry uh, around this killing as there was around bin laden's killing there was at least a moral nervousness about it there was a, a pause for thought now and is there any scope in that argument that it is morally questionable is there something to that i mean is it difficult to talk about international law in this case are there gray areas is there something to be said for being cautious about drone strikes and what they entail i mean i was over the moon that she's dead Whenever these lead, a leading member of ISIS gets taken out, I, I have a wonderfully warm feeling because, you know, for obvious reasons, they're awful individuals and they deserve to die. They've made a moral choice to go to war, not just against the West, but against Western values. They've made a decision to kill and maim and torture people who disagree with them. So I think that it's right to be happy when they get their comeuppance. However, I think there is a, a, a qualifier to that. These strikes raise questions about the status of uh, the countries that are being drone struck. So there is a problem, I think, with undertaking very extensive unmanned drone operations against countries with whom we are not at war. So the United States have undertaken drone strikes against uh, Pakistan. They've been doing that for a long time. Um, I think they've killed over a thousand um, combatants uh, that way. It's also estimated by the FBI, and I cite these figures in the in the piece, that around 116 civilians were killed in the course of uh, 2009 to 2015, which are figures which cover Obama's uh, presidency. Obama also launched strikes against Yemen and Somalia, which again uh, the United States were not at war with. So I think they do raise difficult questions. I mean, I I wouldn't be wholeheartedly supporting um, drone strikes across the world. And I think when people see this as a sort of um, form of world policing, there is something in that idea. You know, you, you shouldn't allow a country to indiscriminately undertake these kind of strikes. Uh, with that qualifier, I'd say that we have to treat each and every one of these strikes as a moral question in itself. We have to consider the moral benefit of, of the decision that's been taken and weigh that up against the effect that it has on a country's sovereignty. And I think in this case, where a woman is such a prominent member of a, a, an organization with whom the United States are at war, the moral benefit of taking her out massively uh, outweigh any nervousness I might have about launching the strike itself. And in those circumstances, I think that weighing up the consequence of undertaking the strike in the first place versus the moral good of 
killing the White Widow, I think there can be little question that killing her was the right thing to do. Well, finally then, Nick, do you think that people actually sometimes forget that we're at war with ISIS, you know, forget the fact that this organisation has declared war on our way of life, does commit continuous atrocities, is a real threat? I mean, do you think we need to remind people of the seriousness of what we're dealing with? Thankfully, ISIS are now in retreat. They've lost significant ground in both Syria and Iraq. It looks as though uh, the Kurds are doing uh, a superb job of clearing them out of even their greatest strongholds. Obviously, the Kurds are really the unsung heroes of the operations against uh, ISIS. And I think we should do everything we can now to recognize that uh, what the Kurds have done to, to limit um, ISIS's ability to spread. Our involvement against ISIS should recognize that they are out to destroy our way of life. And where there is an opportunity to inflict casualties and harm against their cause without causing greater disruption to what is an already decimated region of the world, um, we should grab that opportunity with both hands. And I think in this particular circumstance, that was what was done. That was Luke Gittos on the death of Isis's white widow. Now for our final topic. It's the centenary year of the Russian Revolution, and we are now in October, that most exciting moment for the Bolsheviks, when they stormed the Winter Palace and made history. For Spiked, the Russian Revolution is a great moment in history, and Lenin and Trotsky's Bolshevism remains inspiring today. Another organisation which shares this view is WorldRight, a hackney-based charity which trains young people to make films and encourages them to think differently about politics. In their latest documentary, 1917, Why the Russian Revolution Matters, WorldRight aims to sweep pretenders aside and do justice to this great experiment in social change. Kerry Dingle is the director, and I visited her at the WorldRight offices to get the lowdown on why she thinks 1917 was one of the greatest moments in human history. So, Kerry, World Rights has made a new film. It's called 1917, Why the Russian Revolution Matters. Now, that is to mark the centenary of the October Revolution in 1917, and others have been releasing books. There are articles being written about it. There is some conversation about this anniversary. But why did World Rights feel that it wanted to make this film? Well, we've been making a lot of films that are historical, that are about lesser-known heroes and heroines like CLR James or like Sylvia Pankhurst and obviously this is a big centenary but we felt back at the beginning of the year even then you look at what was promised for the year ahead and it was so dour it was so misanthropic it it was almost as if the Russian revolution was just this awful awful tyrannical horror of a thing that had happened and you know if you're someone like me, that got my goat. You know, these are people from my political past 30 years ago who were heroes. And I thought, well, we should revisit this and see if we can't tell a different story, a bit of a myth buster, a truth trip, and have an adventure with our volunteers into the revolution to look at what really occurred and put the record straight. That kind of uncomfortableness about it, it really has been played out in the reaction from some members of the left, because I get this really palpable sense that they're incredibly conflicted, incredibly uncomfortable about talking about it. They're very cagey about discussing 1917, especially the October Revolution. They're, they're very cagey about talking about that. Why do you think that is? 
I think it's a whole swathe of factors that have come together. I mean, overall, we are very disenchanted with human progress, with people's capacity and willingness to change things. We see our fellow citizens as pretty destructive and ghastly. We hate the fact that people stuck two fingers up to the elite um, through the Brexit vote. There's all sorts of ways we see a manifest contempt fellow man. And that's reflected in the way people see the past, which is very sad. So a lot of the left, I think, the old left, are uncomfortable with their own evolution. Those that were Stalinist influenced, which is the majority, should be uncomfortable. They're responsible for horrors all over the world. And those that perhaps weren't in that remit don't see much as possible anymore. A cynical, a part of environmental movements and movements that don't see human beings and human progress and freedom as number one anymore. And so, hardly surprising they're conflicted. It's very sad that they then can't tell the truth. And then on the other side, there are some on the left who seem to be talking about 1917 as if it could happen tomorrow. There's a kind of weird fetishization of it that, you know, this is something that's on the cusp now and we have to talk about it as if it wasn't this great moment in history, but it's this sort of thing that has continued to have potential. They sort of, yeah, fetishize it. What's going on there? Yeah, I think you're right. I think on both sides of the coin and in in many ways, obviously right and left don't exist um, as they did in the past. But I think, you know, whatever you're, whatever you've evolved from politically, there is this belief that somehow history provides you with a recipe for now. Either one which says, don't try and change anything, look at how awful, you know, the 1917 revolution was, or look at the 1917 revolution with Uh, rose-tinted spectacles and think it somehow accounts for today's context. Both are mythical approaches and quite disastrous. You can't read Lenin or you can't go back further and read Marx and know what's the best way to deal with the problems we face today. It's not there. It won't help you. Times have changed so much. You can learn a lot from history But A, you need to get the history right and you can learn a lot from history in the sense that it shows you things aren't fixed or natural, um, but it won't tell you what to do and how to do it. Well, in the spirit of getting the history right and busting some myths, I've had the pleasure of being allowed to see a sneak preview of the film and one of the great things that it does is deal with some of the myths that are floating around about 1917, the mistakes that are made about when interpreting 1917 and the ideas that still continue. And one of those is this myth about the dictatorship of the proletariat, the idea that the Bolsheviks were anti-democratic, that it was fundamentally not something that was involved of or encouraging democracy. What about that? Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because it's a really weird thing to think that because you want the mass of people to run their own lives and to be more free and to run society on the basis of their need, not some minority's profits or interests, that that's somehow anti-democratic. And it is a conflation, which Mick Hume explains very well in the film, of the idea of the dictatorship of a majority 
as opposed to what preceded it, which is the dictatorship of a minority over everyone else in society. And I think, you know, the word dictatorship gives people the heebie-jeebies, probably quite rightly, you know, we all think, oh my God, a dictator. Um, How ghastly is that and scary? But the dictatorship of the proletariat, you know, the ideas that the Bolsheviks put forward was a recognition that you would have to hold on to the gains that you'd made for the majority by force if necessary, that the old capitalist class and aristocrats and business people and miserablists were not going to go away overnight. And indeed they didn't. And a terrible civil war ensued. So that attempt to hang on to um, the gains of 1917 with the majority of people, Russian citizens, on your side was an important way to go about things a hundred years ago in Russia when you're isolated you know, revolutions failing elsewhere. It's a very clear, political, wholly democratic, more democratic than we can even think of um, approach, closer to the direct democracy of ancient Athens, which had its flaws, we know, um, than anything we've ever seen in history. In fact, that's what's incredibly exciting about that moment historically. And then, of course, one of the other big myths that a lot of people still kind of believe today is the idea that it was inevitably going to turn into Stalinism, that revolution always ends in violent authoritarianism. What about that? Well, it's ridiculous. I mean, absolutely ridiculous. You know, if you try and change anything, it's all going to go pear-shaped. So, you know, stay in a box and suffer hell, you know, rather than try and do something about it. There was nothing inevitable about the failure of the revolution. I think we know, and well, most people don't know, what the Bolsheviks were up against, the level of intervention, the armies of intervention, the white armies, how extent of Britain's involvement with troops massed in a place called Archangel, troops in Siberia. There was under General Ironside, they were commanding French, British, Canadian American troops. The Secretary of War handed General Graves a sealed envelope containing our policy in the Russian situation. Watch your step. You will be walking on eggshells loaded with dynamite. Who were all, by the way, lined up in nice blockhouses with heating and lighting, with machine guns mounted and barbed wire everywhere, um, because Britain was really sure that after the end of the First World War they'd stop fighting the Germans. They weren't going to bring the troops back. They were going to turn on this, what they called this unnatural, which is quite funny, in the Balfour papers, in the cabinet papers of 1918, what they called this unnatural political order, these evil Bolsheviks. And in fact, funnily enough, the Manchester Guardian back in the day reports on how they searched the dictionary to find as many anti-Bolshevik expletives as they could Um, at the same time as they were trying to say that what they were doing what Britain and other countries were doing interfering in the affairs of a sovereign country which was a bit awkward for them how they were going to justify this with the first world war being over they were concerned to say that it was just a moral duty um, to protect people who'd been their erstwhile allies so, you know, you it's very hard for us to imagine a situation that has got incredible level of military intervention 
You also have a country that has been devastated by the number of people who've been slaughtered, mass slaughter uh, of Russian conscripts in the First World War and, and people who'd signed up voluntarily. You have levels of famine that make Biafra look minimal. You know, it was that bad. And in that situation, trying to maintain a new society and a new social order is pretty unthinkable. Akin to that, Lenin was very clear that the revolution could never succeed unless there was international solidarity. In other words, revolutions elsewhere. It would be easy to make a revolution in a backward country like Russia it would be very hard to hang on to it. And that's the truth of the matter. So it's out of that incredible level of horror of the white armies who did terrible things as well, which we learn about in the film, ghastly, sadistic um, monstrosities that are carried out, that civil war and famine uh, and the failure of revolutions elsewhere. It's that conflation of circumstances that leads to the revolution's failure and it's from that after Lenin's death in 1924 we see the emergence of effectively a new party a very different party and the growth of a bureaucracy which is about surviving for its own sake and forsakes the idea of solidarity internationally everywhere else and otherwise magnifies the isolation of Russia and then politically justifies it and says, oh no, this is all fine. And Stalinism, you know, becomes the most awful um, political ideology that screws struggles all over the world. But there is nothing inevitable in the revolution that leads to that. It's the crushing of it that gives rise to that barbarism. Well, finally then, Kerry, what is it for you that is most important to remember and take from this great moment in history? What excites you most about 1917? Well, making this film with volunteers has been really interesting because there's so many things. You know, the, some of the interviewees we've got are so inspiring to listen to. And I hope that does come through in the film. And there's so much you can say. I think probably number one is thinking about how there is no natural order of things you know how what we have is man-made and therefore man can change it you know I've said already that it isn't a cookbook it isn't a recipe book for now but there are all sorts of things that can inspire you you know that what people manage to do that level of political conviction of bravery and heroism absolutely an amazing period to understand, you know, when people have that level of understanding and politics and discussion of ideas, probably the most fantastic experiment in social change in human history. And it's a seminal event. I think the other exciting thing, which people don't recognise, is to realise how much it changed. You know, the number of things that changed all over the world as a consequence, even though the legacy today really is nowhere to be seen, changed everything from economic strategy for how we think about each other. So there's all sorts of incredible progressive steps um, that emerge from that 
that are great to learn about. And it's inspiring to know that our fellow human beings a hundred years ago did things that we wouldn't dare today, yet we live in so much you know, better times. Wild Rights Documentary, 1917, Why the Russian Revolution Matters, will premiere at the Battle of Ideas Festival in London on Saturday, the 28th of October. This will take place at the Barbican, and to book your tickets, head to www.battleofideas.org.uk or follow the link below. You've been listening to the Spike Podcast. To get your daily dose of spiked opinion, head to spiked-online.com, subscribe to our podcast feed, and if you'd like to help Spiked continue to thrive, be sure to make a donation. Thanks for listening.